0: Welcome to the show, Mr. Entrepreneur, Mrs. Entrepreneur, or non gender entrepreneur. Hope you enjoy.
1: Once you focus on just doing one thing and doing one thing really well, it's much easier, particularly if you have that obsessive personality, which most entrepreneurs do. Every day, when either of us wake up, we're like, how can we improve parts of our process? Money, 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 money two weeks and you made $30,000 and then you spent the same time this month in the forum kind of talking to people about buying and selling websites, what have you made there? And it was like, zero. A tip if you want to buy a business for invest, like just because you have. <laughs> Seven years ago, I really kind of struggled with this stuff when I was like relatively early on. Now it's a lot more normal. I've just accepted the fact that there will be issues every single day and it will really vary what it is. When you do have time, try and actually spend some quality time together. I was one of those culprits that I would work all the time and then when to get to weekends, I would also work all weekend and I would never really take a break. Hey, Austin. Thanks very much for having me on. My name is Thomas Male. I'm the founder of Effie International. I'm 32 years old and I started the company 10 years ago back in 2010. We are an m firm that specializes in the sale of SaaS, e-commerce and content-based businesses. And across the world at the moment, we have a team of just over 50 people. Our head office is in New York. And then we also have an office in London, in Europe. And then I'm based in San Francisco on the West Coast. And then we work with clients all over the world. Over the last 10 years, we've closed the sale of over 800 businesses. And in the last 12 months, that was just over, well, just short of 200 in total and continuing at a similar rate again this year.
0: Right. So you basically help people sell their online businesses. Either you're helping someone buy an online business or sell an online business?
1: Yeah, precisely. So our client is the founder or the the owner of the business. So they're the ones paying us the fee. But it's obviously in our best interest to work with buyers and help them find a business that's a good fit for them. And also establish what's not a good fit because we don't want people to buy something that they're not going to do very well with. And also sellers and business owners want to sell their business to someone who it's gonna do a good job once they take over the business. It doesn't just end once the deal closes. There's obviously many years of work and contact that goes into after that.
0: And so in 2019, just give us an idea of how many businesses you actually ended up selling to potential buyers.
1: Yeah, it was just under 200 in total of all different sizes between our smallest was around $30,000 in terms of valuation and our largest was just short 50 million in valuation. So there's a real range in there. Like I said, you describe it as online businesses, but essentially businesses that drive most their business online, whether that's SaaS, e-commerce, content, maybe.
0: Because if we were talking like a retail store, that's way different than being able to easily transfer ownership of an online store specifically. Is that the idea? Because if we we're talking about buying an actual bakery or something like that, that'd be way more difficult for you to sell online versus an online actual business.
1: Yeah, and just the nature of what our buyers are looking for. They're looking for a business that can generally be run from anywhere in the world. It's very rare for us to deal with any real estate or leases. Sometimes in e-commerce businesses, there might be stock and a warehouse or maybe a small manufacturing facility. But the vast majority of businesses we represent can be run from literally anywhere. And then the nature of the customers, they are coming, they're finding the business online. We're not dealing with a, a retail store and then an e-commerce shop on the back end. It's almost always getting all of their business online. Hence why content-based businesses, so things like blogs are really popular and software businesses where people are kind of signing up online and using the pull-up in the cloud.
0: And you said you're 32 years old? Yeah, that's right. Okay. And been doing it 10 years. So if I do the math correctly, that'd be 22 years old.
1: Yeah, exactly. So I graduated college when I was 22 in 2010, and that's when I started a business. So it feels weird to say I'm 32 now because when I started the business, I was felt extremely young in this industry 10 years is a very long time. Most companies have not been around for that long. And 10 years ago, for people who have been in the industry 10 years, they know how much it's changed. But I think a lot of people coming into it now kind of take for granted how common it is to see SaaS everywhere. Everyone's using SaaS. Like we're currently talking over Zoom. 10 years ago, there wasn't Zoom. So things have changed quite quickly, even in the relatively short time I've been around.
0: Yeah, especially like you're saying, 10 years of business and you're 32 years old. Usually people might have like two or three companies over a 10-year period, but you still have got the one that you started outside of college.
1: Yeah, exactly. I've never really done anything else. We did a few different things when we started out in 2010, and then we decided just to focus on M&A. And since then, over the years, we've launched a few new things. So for example, we have like a print magazine we published called SASMAG, but that's really just part of FE International, the main business. And that's all I work on day to day and all I have done for 10 years, which I know is strange because a lot of people, like you say, in the first 10 years, we've done 5, 10, 20 different things. Maybe they've sold a company, sold multiple companies or bought a company. I've never really done that unless it's part of FE International.
0: And M&A, just so everyone knows, is it mergers and acquisitions, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, In very simple terms, it sounds quite complex, but it's really just <laughs> right. selling a business effectively.
0: And most of these are really just acquisitions, really, for you guys, right? Whoever's buying it, do you have any companies actually like buying an e commerce store and merging it with their e commerce store?
1: Yeah, it's very uncommon to see like an actual traditional merger where it's like, hey, we take 50% of your company and take 50% of ours. That's not really how it works, even though that's what the name sounds like. Probably the most common we see is always you buy 100% of someone's company and take it over. But sometimes you do see situations where the seller may retain, say, 10%. In the business to kind of help the buyer or maybe consult with the buyer on an ongoing basis. But generally speaking, yeah, you're selling the whole business. So if you hear the term MA or mergers and acquisitions, that's what you're talking about. It's not really as complex as it,
0: it's as the, the fancy term might sound. Basing your accent, doesn't sound like you're from San Francisco.
1: No, I like to pretend I'm from San Francisco. No, I'm actually originally from London, hence why our one of our offices is still in London and why we have a team there, because that's where I started the business. my business partner is also from London. He now runs our New York office. I run our San Francisco office, and then we have a team in London, an office there. And then one of the two of us generally goes back once a month or once every two months to spend some time with the team. And both of us have kind of friends and family back there as well.
0: He's in a New York office and you're in San Francisco?
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Okay, cool. Is there a reason both of you wanted to come to the US?
1: So it started out with... Just as well move first, primarily the reason we did is we were both working in London. The vast majority of buyers we were working with were based in the US, and that's still the case today. And about 50% of the sellers we work with are the US, and then 50% rest of the world. So really for us, it was, we were sat in London with the time difference with say, I don't know, Florida, New York, that's five hours, San Francisco, LA, it's eight hours. We found we were working until midnight, 2am, 4am every day. Just to run business as normal. And if we ever wanted to meet clients, it was almost impossible because you had to jump on a international flight. So it was barely ever worth it. Whereas now I'm in the US, I travel, well, most of the time, at least.
0: <laughs> yeah, not as much anymore.
1: Basically. <laughs> yeah, not right now, but generally I travel about once a week so I can meet clients all the time. And the nature of what we do, if you're selling a business. And we joked about me only having one business over 10 years, but there's lots of people who only have one business over 10 years. So if you spent 10 years working on a business, you probably don't make the decision to sell overnight. It's probably a multi-year process to decide. And you want to meet who you're going to be working with. Because if you hire us to sell your business and the process takes, say, three months for a $5 million deal, that's a lot of time you're going to be spending with us. And we're getting a significant chunk of your business effectively in fees. So you want to make sure that you're working with someone you can trust. Hence why in-person is such an important part of the business for us, which is the primary reason we moved to the US. It's just being closer to people geographically and also just phone wise. I like to speak on the phone. I don't really send many emails. I call people all the time or video chat or whatever it might be. It was just much easier for us being on the same time zone. And then culturally as well, we kind of like laugh that we have quite an American style of business in general. Or quite we have both my business partner and I have quite a direct style, which in the US is socially very acceptable and culturally quite normal. But in the UK and in London, being direct is often considered rude and it's not quite as could not always be quite as effective. We both like it here.
0: Well, yeah, could you give you a kid's example? I'm curious about that. I don't think I've even heard that before.
1: Yeah, I'd say just in general, it's not necessarily that you'll be impolite, but I just feel like in the US, you can ask very straight up for what you want. In the UK, like traditional culture has a habit of like, if you want something, you don't necessarily ask for it, which is quite difficult to explain to an American audience. Because if you're used to being direct, if you want a cup of coffee, you ask for a cup of coffee. Whereas in the UK, would you like a cup of coffee? And they're like, oh, no, I'm fine. Thank you. But actually, they do want that coffee. (laughs) That makes everything much more difficult, right? Hence why I like being direct. But in the UK, it's strange because it's hard to understand unless you been there and live there.
0: I believe it. There's timid people in the US too. It just sounds like maybe it's kind of more of that cultural rig. Exactly. You might have to ask three times, and then the third time they say yes.
1: <laughs> and the nature of what we do is having different. The vast majority of conversations we have, particularly at a, like a senior level in the company, a difficult conversation. It's our job. You pay us a lot of money to sell your business or help you find a business to buy our job to tell you the things that you don't necessarily want to hear if we're just agreeing with everything you say and everything you think then why would you need to hire us in the first place you might as well just do it yourself so the direct style does work well some people don't like it and we definitely get people who say oh wow these guys like a bit aggressive or a bit too direct or they weren't very like nice to me but ultimately that's not really our job if you want that then you shouldn't be hiring a professional advisory firm you should be no probably hanging out with your friends who are going to tell you that what
0: you're doing is great yeah, so what have you thought of our group call so far? I like the group call
1: so far. I like how insightful it is and it's kind of an extension of your interviews. That's how it feels. And I think that if anybody has a real project they're working on, they can benefit a lot from it. One thing that made me want to join was when you shared the first group call. And I heard that episode and I'm like, this is a nice little community. It's friendly, it's genuine. And so that was helpful.
0: People don't get to see all the stuff that I've been doing lately. It's like halfway through interviews, I'll cut them off and be like, hey, you know, I'll redo this with you, but it's not interesting enough. (laughs) Which they don't appreciate. It's kind of bruised to their ego sometimes, but you got to do what you got to do, so... Also, did you figure out over time that it was just easier to be in the U.S. and see these people, even though you're selling these online businesses? Was that something that just took time? Because, again, most people might think, like, OK, you're selling online businesses. You don't really need to meet the people. But it made sense what you said. Why? Because it might take a while. And especially if you're talking about sales and access of a million or two million, I'd imagine those people will actually like want to meet you as well. But is that something that you figured out over time? Yeah, I mean, so you definitely don't need to meet people. So for many years, I'd never really met anyone and it was
1: just be over the phone. I think over time, particularly as deals get bigger, meeting in person is definitely more relevant. So I'd say about that million level, probably about right. Once you get above that level, if you're selling a company for $10 million that we do quite regularly, you probably want to meet us in person or at the very least be referred by someone we've met in person, particularly, and as the industry's gone on, this has become more prevalent because more companies have entered the industry and there's more, quite honestly, like bad companies out there who don't do a very good job. So if you make the effort to go meet people and you don't really have anything to pitch other than, hey, here's what we think your company's worth here's how the process should work, then that can be quite powerful in an industry full of people who think that you don't need to travel and meet people. So while it feels like an online business, effectively, we treat it like it's an offline business and it's our job to go meet people. So over time, that's definitely developed and we meet more and more people every year. And our average deal size approximately doubles every year. So we're definitely going more and more upmarket. And the more upmarket you go, the more in-person meetings are Conversely, the vast majority of deals never require any in-person meeting at all. We do try to speak on the phone. It really depends on the client expectations. We have a lot of clients who don't speak English as their first language. So maybe they're less comfortable in person or on the phone, and maybe they just want to speak over kind of instant message or email, which is fine. And ultimately our job is to like facilitate the sale. We don't necessarily say you have to meet us in person or we have to do it over the phone or it has to be email. It's whatever you're most comfortable with. And that's really our job as well. It's kind of selling a business is a stressful process. So a lot of it is kind of taking the stress and the hassle out of it and making you feel as a seller, feel comfortable and exactly the same as a buyer as well.
0: So, when someone's like buying a business from your website or through you guys at V International, do you have an idea of what part is actually all cash buying versus some of them might need loans? It sounds like, for instance, if you're buying like a $10 million business online, I don't imagine that a lot of people have that much cash to actually purchase the business and start running it.
1: Yes. If we like break the question up into different parts. So, the different types of buyers you have very approximately break down into three groups. One is, individuals and partnerships so that might be someone like yourself that might be me if i sold f international then you have strategics so strategics can be buying businesses at any level from 10 dollars to the biggest company sales you hear about in the world so they're generally a company that is already operating in that space who wants to buy someone relevant So it might be in your industry, you might go buy another podcast that has a very similar listenership to what you have in our industry. It might be we go buy another M&A firm that has a similar audience that we have. And then you have private equity firms. And again, similar to mergers and acquisitions, it's a bit of a buzzword, but all it effectively means is a company or a person who has raised money from other people to do acquisitions. So they are the ones that do tend to have cash. For example, some of the eight-figure deals we did last year, so say a $10 million deal, a $15 million deal, a couple of deals over $20 million, they are mostly in cash. They're not raising cash from a bank or a loan usually. They're usually getting it from investors or multiple investors. But sometimes these can be one of the deals we did last year, which was around 50 million, with a multi-billion dollar fund doing the deal. So while $50 million in cash sounds like a lot of money to you and I, and I'm assuming you do not have $50 million in cash. No, just 25. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so between us, we could pair off and buy it. The vast majority of people do not have that much in cash. But for a private equity firms, they're billion dollars in fund. 50 million is just 5% of what they have. So it's a relatively affordable amount for them. At the lower end, individuals tend, can be buying businesses at all levels as well. Generally speaking, you don't find many people with more than, say, $5 million in cash. So that's what in the US, you can use SBA loans to buy businesses. We don't do a huge amount with SBA loans just because a lot of deals we do are with buyers who have cash. And then strategic buyers as well, like they can do lots of different things. Uh, they might have an existing line of credit they can use. They might be able to get debt against or use their existing business as collateral. There's lots of different ways you can do it. I'd say in general, the average deal we work on, so if you look across all of them, the average deal is usually about 80% in cash upfront and then 20% some form of back-end financing from the seller or the owner of the business. So on a million dollar deal, that might be say $800,000 upfront and then $200,000 paid over a year based on a couple of factors or whatever is agreed as part of the deal. There's not really a standard. It can really, really vary. As to where those people are getting the cash from in the first place, it really varies we work with a lot of people, a lot of buyers who have sold businesses in the past and they might have had an exit for 20 million, 50 million, 250 million. They've invested a bunch of cash. They don't want to necessarily start a business again, but they've got a bit bored thinking they're going to retire. So they then want to go invest, I guess to us, what feels like a lot of money, but they'll go invest one to five million dollars in buying another business they can run, I guess, without the stress and hassle of running a hundred million dollar business, which they might have been used to before. So there is a real range. And I guess one of the reasons as well, going back to your earlier question about why you moved to the US, the US just has a lot of money in general. And culturally, owning your own business is the American dream. It's not really something that the average English person aspires to as such. There is a lot of money here and people do actually want to use it to buy business if they can. So if that's part of the reason we're here, and it does mean there's a lot of cash out there to buy businesses, there's not as many people as you might think borrowing money to buy businesses. And because it's so competitive as a buyer, we have tens of thousands of active buyers on our list. If you have to get a loan that's going to take you six months to find that money to buy a business, probably already going to be sold by then. So having cash already puts you at a kind of strong advantage. I think where you hear about people borrowing money to buy businesses Much more common if there's real estate involved. So if you're buying like a restaurant or a retail store, like the example you used earlier, much more common to use a loan Because in that industry, people have been borrowing money to buy real estate for hundreds, probably thousands of years. But people borrowing money to buy an online business is a much newer concept to bank and lenders. So what it does happen, it's definitely not the cultural or industry norm just yet. Maybe in 10 years time, maybe when I'm 42, we have this conversation again. Maybe that'll be the case, but right now, not really.
0: And that makes sense. Like, I figured that as much, but I just want to put in perspective if people are thinking, how do you buy a business, especially an online one? We're just kind of looking at the differences of. Real estate or buying a retail store or whatever, even though they still might take three months to get done. It's just interesting. It seems like the difference, instead of maybe getting the loan where that might be 80% of, let's just say, an office building purchase and you bring 20% equity, it's kind of the opposite with you guys where they usually at least have 80% of the asking price and then the seller might give you 20% over time. Because I imagine there's a time period when someone's buying a website that the old owner is helping make sure they answer all the questions. That they need in order to make the actual acquisition happen and to help the new owner get used to generating money for this business or making sure that the business is running full 100% versus just passing it off one day and the next day the new owner's like, I don't even know what to do, right?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. There's always a training period agreed, usually it's 90 days. But it really depends. Like we work with buyers with all range of experience. We work with people who have, like I said, sold a business for a hundred million dollars and running a million dollar business to them is easy. And we work with people who have never seen a million dollars in their life and they've never run a business before, and their first acquisition is kind of the hardest for them, and they have a big learning curve. So that training period with the seller is really important. And that was also my point earlier about One of the reasons we like to meet people in person is there is a big relationship element for the transaction, but also the transaction, also after the transaction. So even if your contract as a seller with the buyer says that you're only helping them for 90 days, if you like the buyer and you want them to do well, and they call you in 12 months time and they say, hey, Austin, I'm thinking about launching a podcast to grow the business. What do you think? If you have a good relationship, you're not going to say, oh, sorry, the contract says I'm not obligated to speak to you now. there's a good relationship, you're going to happily help the buyer. And ultimately, if the buyer is successful, generally that is good for everyone involved. There's very little downside to someone being successful. I don't know, particularly in the online world, it's easy to get caught up in a lot of the negativity you can find on kind of social networks and things like that. But often, someone being successful is a good thing. There's not really any downside to that as long as they're not ripping people off for a living. It doesn't really affect
0: anyone else. So 10 years ago, did you think you'd have a business this successful?
1: I must admit, I really had no idea. I think I was a bit of a dumb kid graduating college. And also the industry as it is today didn't really exist. It was much, much smaller. Maybe the biggest company or industry was doing 10 or 15 deals a year. So we now do 10 times that, probably 10 times revenue, what they were doing then. We have, like I said, just over 50 employees. I think back then the biggest company might have been three or four people. So it was very hard to see, I guess, where it could have got to, but offensively, the industry has grown with us. I wouldn't necessarily try and take credit for all of the industry growth, but definitely the fact we've existed. 90% of it? A nice percentage. (laughs) Because I'd say as we've grown and we've helped people sell their businesses, we've very much grown through word of mouth because founders and entrepreneurs like to talk. They will kind of tell their friends or their peers or their mastermind group or whatever, how they sold their business. And then that really snowballs all it takes is a couple of central people in a group to do a deal and sell their business and then it kind of can snowball into more business down the line but no 10 years ago i had no real clue i just quite honestly at the time just liked helping people and quite honestly i think also the other thing is a founder that a lot of people forget like the amount of money you personally make does not necessarily increase a huge amount as time goes on because you have overheads and employees so judging success from that perspective is i always think is quite difficult some people would say you're successful if you're making a million dollars a year just working by yourself because you could have 250 employees and be making 200,000 a year. So yeah, success is always very subjective. So I'd say, no, I had no clue I could build anything this big. I was very much naive and I really went into it just trying to help people. And I think that's probably actually helped us grow because I'm. It's while our job is to sell, I wouldn't really describe myself as a natural salesperson, definitely an introvert. And so most people in our team but I do like helping people and I do know a lot about industry and I definitely think that helps build credibility in an industry, which I'm sure you've seen this as well. There's a lot, of, a lot of people you can trust, but there's also a lot of people you can't. So having that trust, particularly if you build like, over 10 years, definitely, definitely help.
0: So which people can't we trust? Well, I mean, it, I was going to see if you're going to name companies. I was kind of joking there.
1: Ultimately, you never know. I think it's difficult. Like sometimes you'd be surprised that you can't trust. In general, I think you just have to look for the small signals there could be all sorts of different things but generally speaking i find and we like to ask people lots of questions early on in the process and one of the reasons we do that and often they're seemingly pointless questions you often find that if someone is willing to lie about saying quite small they're also willing to lie about saying much bigger even if they think it's really casual and kind of irrelevant for sure so for example if you ask me how many employees i had and i said i have a hundred when you could quite obviously find out you only have 50 then it's like well. What else is he? You're not even
0: going to list that company.
1: Exactly. It's like, then what else are you lying about? So no, yeah. A big thing for us is like, can we trust the seller? Do we like the seller? We say no to probably about 99% of businesses that come to us for various reasons. If we're in any way uncomfortable with the seller and exactly the same for buyers, we definitely frustrate a lot of buyers who come to us because if we don't like them, we think they're being dishonest or... Lots of different things they can do. We just remove them from our network and say, sorry, you can't work with us. A tip if you want to buy a business or invest, like just because you have cash, you're definitely not unique. (laughs) You're also not entitled to like work with a company. I think if you work with a company that will kind of accept anyone that comes in the door with no vetting, then you should probably walk away or kind of have a think about why are they not vetting people. It's a bit of a trade-off because... We're very strict and we have a reputation for that, but it does, it can create a little bit of ill will and kind of, there's a bit of a gray area between having a reputation for being kind of really strict and having a reputation for being a bit of a dip where you just get rid of people because you don't like them. It's a bit of a gray area, but it's definitely important to try and figure out who you can trust. And ultimately also like, do you like them? I think that's a really important part of doing business with people, like you have to actually like them, particularly in a service-based business like we have. My team do not get paid to be talked to in a disrespectful and rude way from people. So if that's what they do, then we have no real
0: interest in working with them.
1: And there's plenty of other people out there who do want to sell a business or buy a business. So we're not reliant on one person.
0: Why don't we go ahead and take it back to how you actually got started coming out of college and how you got started with FE International here?
1: Sure. So back in college, I think I was like many kids. I was kind of coming out of the back of, ironically, the last recession. I think it'd been kind of coming out of the back of it for the last year or so. I did a business degree at college and traditionally most of my peers would have gone into banking or something something like that, the big four or like a big corporate firm. It was, I wouldn't say difficult to get a job back then, but it was definitely harder than it had been in the past. Like bonuses were down, the industry was not booming like it might have been in say 2006. So for me, I started trying to make some extra money while I was at college. Didn't really want to get a day job. So I'd like worked in a bar a bit. But I guess I wanted to find something I could do without leaving my house or really having to do it, do a huge amount. So I started buying and selling domains. I didn't really know anything about domains, but I tried all sorts of different things. And I thought, well, domains are good because you don't have to physically do anything or own anything. You just have to figure out a way to kind of sell it for more than you bought it for. Like, I very quickly found that domains was not the industry I liked because the fundamental problem with domains, they don't really have an intrinsic value. It very much is a cliche, like it's worth what willing what someone's willing to pay for it. A domain to one person might be worth $100, to someone else it might be worth $10,000.
0: Right, just like buying a house. Some people might like a certain house and they might pay 10 million for it, right? Versus I might value it at a million.
1: Yeah, but at least for the house, if you knock the house down and you demolish it, you still have the land which has some underlying value. Whereas with a domain, most domains don't really have any underlying value. So I clearly realized domains were not the way to go. So then I discovered websites that made a small amount of money. And that's where it did start to make sense because if an asset generates cash flow, then you can quite consistently value it, whether it's the stock, the public stock of Facebook or it's a company that makes, say, company. I like to call it businesses back then, but it was buying a website that made $20 a month and then I would work on it for a bit and find a way to get it making $50 a month, which sounds like absolutely nothing and like Qualys, it wasn't really anything. But that meant I could turn a couple of hundred dollars, which is really what I started with, and then maybe turn that into $1,000. So what I was doing is I was using my credit card. I think my credit card had a limit of, I think it was about $1,000. So at the beginning of the month, I would max out my credit card, buying a bunch of websites. And then before the end of the month, I would have to sell them to pay off the credit card. So that was kind of my challenge and incentive. So that's what I was doing. And it was like, turn $200 into $1,000, turn 500 into 2000
0: Well, can you give us an example of one of those first websites, just so a better idea? Oh
1: wow, yeah, so back then one thing that used to be really popular was you don't really see it these days at all, so if you're new to the industry and are not going to have a clue what I'm talking about, but you used to better buy websites that would generate like traffic, like hits. Never really understood the purpose of it, but it could make your like analytics look better or make your website look more popular on tools back then like Alexa, which is a ranking tool I think owned by Amazon now. No one really talks about Alexa now, but back then Your Alexa ranking was like the gold standard of how good your website was. So traffic resellers like that. And exactly that was a reseller. So you would kind of buy the traffic for $10, sell it for $20. So I had a website that resold traffic. And I would spend time on kind of forums, answering questions about buying traffic or selling traffic or whatever it might be. And then people were buying through the website. Super simple. I think I got one to a couple of hundred a month and then I would sell it.
0: Yeah, you did this right at coming out of college though, like you had no job and you were just using your credit card to start making money on this right away outside of college?
1: This was in my final year of college, so 2009 to 2010 before I started FE International. So it was buying selling for a year. So it was like $100 into 1000 biggest sale was never really that much. So then when I graduated, and the South FE International started in May 2010, I realized that I wasn't really going to be able to pay my rent just selling websites for a couple of thousand dollars. I also had a bunch of student debt, which I'm sure most people who have graduated college also understand. And you obviously can't really take loans out once you graduate. Whereas while you're at college, you can kind of borrow what you need to live most of the time. So you don't really have that pressure. So I decided to write a book about how to buy and sell websites for profit. So FETI, it was a course It included like an online forum that you'd sign up to as part of buying the book. So I launched that in May. At the time, I didn't really know how well it was going to do. And that really took off. We sold hundreds of copies it was really popular no one was really spoken about it before and what i found is that while my experience was only turning say 100 into 500 or 500 into a thousand people who own bigger websites were buying it and saying well the concepts you've applied here also work on a fifty thousand dollar business or a hundred thousand dollar business so i thought okay well i'm gonna make my fe international or it wasn't really that then it was just a course effectively we're going to make all our money teaching people how to buy and sell websites. But what actually happened is the people who own the websites and have bought the course said, Hey, Thomas, I've gone through your course. I have this website that makes thousand dollars a month. Can you just sell it for me? So that's really how I started selling businesses for people. I was then again, a kid with no money. So I was like, of course I'll do it. So I just started out selling for people. The good thing starting out was didn't have, because I didn't have any money. Someone would pay me to sell their business that was already making money. So you don't need to outlay any cash to buy the business. And then it really compounded. There's a lot of word of mouth. People would then tell their friends. and they be like, hey, I just sold my, I think the first one I ever did was $18,000. So now it would be very, very small for us. But back then that was, I think I got paid $1,800. So 10% commission back then. So I was like,
0: what's he really look
1: like? You know, now
0: I'm looking at your picture on this thing and I can <laughs> see what you really look like. So it's almost like you're the mystery man. And your uh, podcast is what I spend my time listening to all the time now. As far as the patreon stuff i got in there i just started getting excited because i was listening to these things and i was getting some value out of them and then the affordability of it it's like you're not asking for a billion dollars and so i think you get a lot for that much money a month i just felt like that considering all the value i was getting being fair well i appreciate it i was gonna say it sounds like you listen to me more than my wife does (laughs) But, but we won't tell her that I thought it was a lot more intimate than I thought it was going to be. Like anyone who's thinking about doing it, you'll be able to, to get involved, ask a question, you know, which I don't have a lot of experience with other group calls, but I would assume that there's kind of a hierarchy to it. But this one, if you're in there, you're going to get your shot to ask an expert a question. So I tried to compare my group calls. I started joining random entrepreneur groups and just joining their group calls and try to see what they're like. Dude, the one you were on and all of them have kind of gone that way. They're all 10 X better than any other group I've been in because become a member to find out. What did FE international even stand for? Cause we haven't discussed that. I was curious. I said FE is founder exit. Okay. Makes sense now. And smart to call it international, obviously, cause online, right? Yeah, but
1: back then we like, tried all sorts of different things. We had all sorts of like, domains and names, but no, we settled on F International. And I think, like you say, like, the international element makes sense and people get founder exit. But no, we played around with like various like names and like branding in the past. But then since between 2010 and 2012, we did quite a few different things. And then in 2012, we really settled on, I guess, what is today M&A. And that's really what we focused on and doubled down on. For the first
0: couple of years, it included courses and stuff.
1: So that's really how we grew. And then it was really just word of mouth,
0: compounded from there. Yeah, let me just jump in here, if you don't mind. It's just like that first year, for example, you're saying we, but was it just you the first time? And then eventually your friend came on as a co-founder?
1: Yeah, so my business partner now joined in. 2012. We had a couple of people, but they were mostly like uh VAs, a couple of other like partners in different ventures. But yes, like the F International today is really like 2012 when my current business partner joined. The first two years was a bunch of different people. A couple of the people who worked for me back then, the very first two people I hired still work for us today. And they're actually remote and they have been remote for many years now. So some people have been with the business all the time. They've kind of seen it grow as, as time has gone on. It was much smaller at the time. I guess the nature of selling courses and books is you don't really need much of a team because effectively I was just selling well, especially a book. And then in the forum and community, it was mostly just me sat in there answering questions. And I think also at the time, as a slightly lazy kid, as I was then, I didn't really like the idea of hiring people or having to manage people. I thought it would be more fun just doing it by myself.
0: You could say you're lazy, but I guess most people are probably still just playing video games and shit, like at that age as well, coming out. Yeah. Depends on your perspective of lazy. I think starting an online business, even if you're probably only doing it maybe 20 hours or 30 hours a week because you're still in school, whatever, or even coming out, you know, again, it's perspective at the end of the day.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I think it's definitely changed me now. I'm like...
0: Now you're probably really professional. I mean, you're old now. You're 32, so...
1: Yeah. I mean, I consistently work 80 hours a week now and I have done for very many years. I think things really change once you start hiring people and you have bills to pay. Like we have, we pay our combined rent across our offices is nearly a billion dollars a year.
0: So you can't be lazy. Yeah. (laughs) Think
1: back to the early days and exactly, you kind of almost can't be lazy. So you're forced by the overheads you have created to not be lazy. It's also different once you have a team, like you have we're now working on much, much bigger transactions, which have consequences. You can't just one day wake up and be like, oh, no, I'm not <laughs> going to go to work today. I'm not going to log on because you have clients who are relying on you and paying us sometimes hundreds of thousands or even multiple millions of dollars to represent. them. So things definitely change as you go on. And I think also to kind of half add in your question earlier about did you know how big it was going to get back then? Definitely not. But I also don't think there's anything wrong if we're going to give any, some advice now don't think there's anything wrong like changing your expectations and your maybe like work ethic as time goes on. Like for me, as I realized how big we get, that definitely started changing the work ethic. When I was making $5,000 a month by myself, I thought, well, that's fine. As a single guy, I mean, I'm married now, but back then as a single guy, I was like, well, $5,000 a month as a dumb kid. I was like, that's loads of money. i would never seen so much money in my life before. That was more money than I even really knew existed. Back then, that was a lot of money, whereas now I'm like, well, that doesn't even pay a week of rent in any of our offices worldwide.
0: I think everyone's perspective changes at different parts of your life, especially if things are starting to get better and better. For me, if I start seeing, okay, the business is running the right way, it makes snowballs in a good way for me to get even more professional or hire more people. And then, like you're saying, you might consider yourself lazy from before. But I think as long as you start seeing positive momentum and going the right way, I think a lot of us kind of have that perspective that you do. So you're saying even year one or year two, before you even had a partner, were you making about 50 or 60K net income a year? It sounds like from this.
1: Oh, somewhere in that region, I think our revenue was like a couple of hundred thousand. And then by the time we took into costs, I think I was personally paying myself from memory. I paid myself about $20,000 for the first two years each year. So, it was just about enough to pay rent, like with roommates for a very small apartment in London. And I couldn't afford to go out. I couldn't afford, I could just about eat. That was about it. So, also, I think like making jokes about work ethic, I think that also changes your work ethic. I'm like, do I want to be in a small apartment where I can't afford to like go out? I definitely couldn't go to restaurants or bars or eat and eat.
0: Yeah, because London's not cheap, in case anyone's wondering. I think most people know it's one of the most expensive, if not the most expensive city in the world.
1: Yeah, for sure. So now for me, I think one of the things I did like really early on is I also reinvested as much as I could straight back into the business, which is really not something that most people we see do, but I always had, I think I was in the good position or the fortunate position where I didn't really have much overheads and I was willing to sacrifice basically everything in the first couple of years to reinvest and think once you start hiring people, if you hire two people, you can do three times as much work as you can by yourself. So that really compounds and I'm the same today. I mean, I definitely get paid more today than I did ten years ago. But my business partner and I don't really pay ourselves bonuses.
0: So you're saying you make more than 20k in income a year now?
1: A little bit more, particularly living in San Francisco, where my rent was quite a lot more than that.
0: Yeah, you like expensive cities, obviously.
1: Yeah, but I guess the nature of the cities we're in is somewhat correlated to our clients. Like San Francisco is full of people it's full of founders and full of investors who would kind of laugh at a million dollars being a lot of money because to them a lot of money is a hundred million dollars so a lot of it is really like perspective i like doing interviews like this i think it's good to kind of remember where you came from and stay kind of humble to your roots there's never a day today and i sometimes have to explain this to my team where i think that say making ten thousand dollars from a deal is not a lot of money it's still ten thousand dollars yes, we might have another deal where we make a million dollars in fees, but $10,000 is still $10,000. I had to work effectively half a year for $10,000 10 years ago. So I'm more than happy now for the team to work for say two weeks to make that same amount. So I do think it's important to stay humble and kind of remember, put into perspective how much money, what seems like a small amount now, like really is still 10K is still 10K.
0: When you finally just made that adjustment of maybe bringing a partner or FE International, like What was the exact timing that you switched at? And can you tell us about this transition period of you? It seems like maybe your business starting to take off when you brought in the new partner. Is that when it happened? Or was there some other point along the timeline here?
1: Yeah, it probably was. Because like I said, i worked with a few different people in the past. We've done like different things. We were probably working on probably like five different revenue streams in 2012. So my current business partner, Ismail, when he joined in 2012, we actually went to college together. We lived together for most of that time. We did exactly the same course. So he went off and did the banking thing. Like I mentioned, I did not. And I did this. Effectively, he was working on, in a big investment bank, Citigroup, doing billion dollar and above deals, similar to what you'd really call like mergers acquisitions. All sorts of other fancy names and technical terms you can call it. But effectively, helping billion dollar companies exit or raise money or whatever that might be. Whereas I was on the other side of the spectrum selling, say, I think my biggest deal back then was $300,000. So what we realized is that the skills he had and the skills I had combined be really powerful. I was good at industry side of things, but I didn't really have the formal processes or the kind of technical knowledge or really the desire or ability to manage a team. He had that, but didn't really have the kind of the industry knowledge or the ability to kind of reach founders, talk to founders and kind of get what it was to be a founder. So he joined quite quickly, gave him the title of CEO. I've taken the title of founder. My job effectively has been to bring new clients into the business and then his job has been to run the business effectively for very many years as we've grown things are a bit different now like my internal title is head of m&a so my job is to manage the team that sells all the businesses we represent and his team effectively bring in all the businesses that we represent so things have definitely changed but when he came in he formalized a lot of our processes he immediately identified that we were working on lots of pointless stuff that was taking up time but not really making any money so we just focused on
0: can i pause you there How about that? Because that's probably something we could all learn from. Can you give us some examples of stuff that maybe you were working on and that he saw to help y'all be more efficient and make more money?
1: Yeah. So I think, for example, like we were still selling courses. I think what he identified quite early on is because I enjoyed it. I would spend, like, we had a forum and I'd spend all day sitting in a forum, answering questions, talking to people. Wouldn't really drive any revenue because at the time it was a free forum. And then we had our, our book, which at the time wasn't really making much because we had been distracted by other things so he's like well you're spending 20 hours a week in your forum that makes nothing and he's like oh how long did you spend on this our fees have increased but back then it was say 10 percent commission on a $300,000 deal we'd done a $300,000 sale so you made $30,000 in fees and that whole thing had taken about two weeks start to finish She's so he's like well you spent two weeks and you made $30,000 and then you spent the same time this month in the forum kind of talking to people about kind of buying selling websites. What have you made there? And it was like zero. So we quite quickly realized that the service where we should make our revenue was the kind of representing the sale of businesses or M&A as we, as we now call it. And then the time spent kind of in forums and stuff like that really still do a lot of that. We still spend, obviously I'm here today. So I like coming on podcasts. I like talking about it. We still hang around in communities. We sponsor a lot of events, speak at a lot of events. We still like to talk about what we do. It's just we don't sell anything other than businesses. Once you focus on just doing one thing and doing one thing really well, it's much easier, particularly if you have that obsessive personality, which most entrepreneurs do. Every day when either of us wake up, we're like, how can we improve parts of our process? They might not necessarily be something drastic every day. Sometimes it might just be how we format a template email we send out or an extra field in a form or removing a field from a form or whatever it might be, but the small changes every day. Whereas if you're doing five things, it's much harder. Most people, if they're doing five things, they're not thinking about how do they improve one of those five. They're thinking about what's the next thing I can launch. So how can I have six income streams? We've done the opposite and kind of really focused on how can we really just have one
0: do you not have a form anymore? I'm just looking around your website. I could see from your perspective, maybe you were thinking, you're like, okay, this will eventually help me get a buyer or seller on the website. But again, it's like, how many hours are you putting in? And the actual percentage that actually ends up selling on your website is probably super low. Like you're saying, maybe even 0% where you're doing all that. So from outside perspective, I could see again, making a course, or maybe if you're charging for it, then Yeah, that's an issue because you're still not focusing. But maybe if you did it free and on the side, or had one of your employees takes care of that for quote unquote marketing purposes, and have it free, then that's a different perspective. And then again, you're trying to sell all these individual things instead of just going ahead and selling businesses and making money that way.
1: Yeah, we do have a bunch of free content. We have a bunch of so if you want to buy a business, we have like a beginner's guide to buying a business, an advanced guide to buying a business. So you do have a bunch of content like that, but it's not really a huge focus for us. And we spend a lot of time, because so much of our business is referral-driven and word-of-mouth. I guess most of the work we do, you don't really see on our website. You don't see it on social media. It's done behind the scenes, like on the phone, in person, or over email.
0: Well, do you think, Ismael, without him telling you this, do you think it's something that you would have figured out over time? Or it seems so simple, right? But it's funny, just one little person's outsider's perspective, telling you this about the forum thing, seems like that was one of these game changers for you to make this business successful.
1: Well, I think a lot of it is like, I think I probably knew it. It's probably just having the discipline to not do it. And this is one of the things when you're working by yourself, I think it's very different. It's like, well, this is what I find interesting. Therefore, this is what I'm going to do. Whereas, like I said, as you start hiring people and you have like a business partner, we're accountable to each other, effectively as the shareholders in the business, you have to start being more disciplined with your time. I can't now say to my team, hey, Thomas, what have you done this week? Oh, I spent a whole week chatting in forums about... <laughs> Facebook groups. Yeah, exactly. Seeing Facebook groups talking about this random stuff, like that's not value adding. So I probably knew it. If you ask him the same question, he'll say, no, he didn't know it. He would <laughs> continue doing it forever.
0: We're actually doing an interview with him right after this one. So
1: Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I suspect I probably would have carried on doing it because I enjoyed it. And I think there's really two ways you can go. You can either start hiring people and really let to grow or we have a lot of other companies in our industry who've chosen to stay super small they have teams of three to five people and the owners of those businesses are happy just making live it but we're trying to grow do big deals every year do more deals every year see valuations increase see success rates increase every single metric we have we're trying to increase We're both extremely competitive, so that definitely helps. And working together helps. I think by yourself, it's much easier to kind of get distracted by what you enjoy and kind of ignore the hard stuff. Whereas if you have a partner, and ideally if you have a partner who has a slightly opposite skill set from you, it can be very powerful because I spend most of my time now working on stuff I enjoy and I'm good at. He spends most of his time working on stuff that he enjoys, he's good at. But if we had to switch jobs for the day, we'd probably both hate it and probably not be very good.
0: Since you had that partnership, again, things seem like it's taken off. But what are some of the hardest things that y'all have had to go through over, let's just say, the last eight years since y'all's partnership started?
1: Yeah. So I mean, I think just like within the business in general, one difficult thing is knowing when to hire and how to manage cash flow. Because the nature of what we do, because we've just effectively pivoted to just focus on this, we only get paid if a business sells. And technically, at any stage, either party can pull out until the cash is in the bank so there's a lot of risk in that. So one of our biggest challenges, and it remains our biggest challenge, and it will probably forever be our biggest challenge, it's how do we know when to hire people and how do we manage the cash flow accordingly? So we've always been quite conservative. If you ask anyone on our team, they'll always say, we're really busy, there's never really a quiet time. We're usually hiring when we absolutely have to. We've always been quite conservative with our cash. So I'd say like one of the hard things is like sometimes it's some tempting opportunities that we don't necessarily want to take advantage of because we want to kind of have cash. And I guess particularly like if there's a recession upcoming or whatever that might be, having cash in the bank probably makes sense, but it's tempting to kind of avoid that and spend your cash while well it's going good. So that's always been tough, like managing that cash flow.
0: How much cash flow would you say that you have now as far as in case things would happen? Because I think this is very curious because actually I just had an interview recently where there's some guy that it'll come out around this interview probably just slightly beforehand is that he wants to spend every dollar. Like if he takes out a loan for 6% and he thinks he can make 20% return on it by putting it into his business. Okay. Financially, that makes sense. But from your perspective, and I kind of have the same perspective, it's like, how much risk is that? If I'm going to have only one or two months of cash flow available in my bank account versus maybe nine months or a year or two years worth of cash flow, it could be tempting to go buy some software or whatever else that you think can help you. And a business like yours is important where transaction volume can easily dip very quickly. And then that's your only cash flow coming into the business. So what's your perspective on what you think is a good amount for someone to keep and get a good idea of that for FE International?
1: Yeah, I think firstly, it does depend a little bit on your industry. I'd say like everyone should try to keep at least three months cash in the bank. We generally try and keep anywhere between three and six months cash in the bank. I mean, deal flow for us is quite consistent. So our cash flow on a monthly basis is probably a bit more consistent than you think, particularly because we do so many deals. As the time's gone on, that's definitely become more smooth and that's part of the reason why we still do small deals as well as big deals small deals are good for cash flow and they're a little bit more predictable than larger deals which might take more time to close or there might be if one falls through you really notice that whereas you don't notice a kind of a 50k deal so yeah generally for us three to six months we generally don't dip below three and if we do we'll kind of not necessarily work harder but we'll find ways to make sure we save up a bit that might mean cutting costs temporarily in a particular area I mean, there's lots of ways to do it. I know a lot of people who aggressively borrow money to buy businesses and grow or buy traffic or whatever it might be for their business. And I think that's fine. A lot of it's really like risk tolerance. Also depends how big a team is. I mean, I'm responsible to fifty employees. So for us, if we have to be a little bit more conservative and have cash in the bank, that's fine. And really that's just at the sacrifice of otherwise if you're not gonna do anything you just pay it to yourself as the owner of the business, which we don't do. We choose to fairly underpay ourselves versus what the market would pay us if we went to go get a regular job. But being in a position where I never lose sleep at night overthinking how are we going to pay the rent this month? I've not done that for nine years.
0: Yeah, that's exactly what I told him. I'm like, dude, well, if you can sleep at night, that's all that matters. I'm like, I couldn't based on what the way he thought about it financially and how many loans he might have or not have. But I guess everyone can assess their risk tolerance based on how well they will sleep at night based on their loans or how much money they might have in the bank going forward in case there's any hiccups in business. Because again, that can happen as we obviously know.
1: Yeah, there's definitely not a right or wrong way to.
0: Right. It's all different. Round is perspective, like we said multiple times. That's the reason I have different types of people on. It's like, you know, just go with whatever strategy suits yourself. But I've realized that that's probably something that I've not asked enough to get an idea of how much is enough money in the bank for our business. And some people might be 30 days, some people might be 14 days, might be okay. But some people might want a couple years worth of cash in there just based on the industries and whatnot.
1: Yeah. And I think also every business, you're going to have a bad month or a downturn, whether that's like a macro downturn, like the economy going into recession or just a downturn where, I don't know, maybe your ad account gets banned for a month or something like that and you can't buy as much traffic as usual. And I think that's really the time where you realize, do you have enough cash in the bank? When things are good, obviously it's kind of irrelevant because it's like, well, we're growing, we're profitable every month. So theoretically, if you had $0 in the bank at the end of every month, you'd be absolutely fine. You only really need the cash in the bank for a time when things are difficult, not when times are good.
0: When times are going good, that's the time to save it because then you can't if it's going down.
1: Well, exactly. We've always been very conservative with it. But I mean, I think people have their own level of risk tolerance. I just like to like to sleep well at night.
0: Yeah, I agree. You talked about one hiccup there, but is there anything else? I usually find that most people learn the most, I think, from any of the hardships that you've had along the way. So is there anything else before we get off the call that maybe people could learn from of the hardships that you've endured over this 10-year growth?
1: In general, as a business owner, if there are not problems you're working on, then you're either not looking hard enough for the problems or you are ignoring them. My job day to day is dealing with problems and fixing them. So I say it's the hardship as a founder is you have to get used to the fact you are constantly dealing with problems and issues. Your job is not necessarily like while you have to celebrate the successes, I think that's really more for the team than it is for you personally your job as founder, CEO, or whatever your title might be, is to fix problems. So I guess the hardships are continuous. Like every day there is a new problem. So I don't necessarily have a specific one. It's just kind of living in that constant state of realizing that your job is to fix stuff and realizing that you're in a very privileged position, ultimately to be in a position where you can make those decisions. And often they're, they're difficult decisions. But I think as time goes on, like seven years ago, I really kind of struggled with this stuff when I was like relatively early on. Now it's a lot more normal. I've just accepted the fact that there will be issues every single day and it will really vary what it is. You probably can't predict what it is. If you can predict what it is, then you need to fix that process or personal, whatever it might be. So I guess that's the ultimate thing you need to remember. like Problems will continuously come up. It's not really an issue just because people, whether it's like me on the podcast sounding like business is great all the time. Yes, overall, that is true. But behind the scenes, every business owner has it tough. Every business has problems. Businesses that look great from the outside all probably have dealt with exactly the same problems or struggles you have have in yours as well.
0: Yeah, it's funny. Sometimes I'm like, business is not hard. It's pretty easy. It's pretty simple. I just do these things. But then some days I'm like, this shit's hard. People can't like emotionally sometimes going through these ups and downs. But I think the longer you're in it, the less velocity those hills have, whether you're getting emotionally charged or discharged based on what's happened in business. But Maybe even personally, I was curious because it sounds like you said you work a lot now. What was that transition like going to San Francisco? Did you know anybody and did you have a wife then? And when we moved over here to the U.S.? I'm kind of curious on that perspective for you.
1: Yes, I've been in San Francisco for about a year now. Previously, uh, So our, our office used to be in Boston, which we moved to New York. So previously I was in Boston until we moved most of the team to New York. So I've been in the U.S. three years. I've been married for a little bit longer than that. Quite honestly, the transition for me was not that big because I'd spent so many years dealing with... The biggest change when you move that far is really from a cultural perspective, but because I'd spent... And friends whatnot, I imagine. Yeah,
0: friends is probably the hardest part because I work so much, I guess I don't really have that many (laughs) friends. I think that's why it happens to all of us, honestly.
1: In the US as such, but I think that's also just an age thing. Like People get married, people have kids, you don't hang out with your buddies in bars anyway. So for me, like culturally, it wasn't that much of a huge shift because I already spent my time. I wasn't American, obviously, but I already associated with the culture and I understood US culture. So it wasn't really that much of a big shock. I guess I had the privilege by that stage of being comfortable enough financially that I wasn't worried about stuff like how do I pay my rent? Can I rent a reasonably nice apartment? That kind of stuff.
0: Did you buy a house? That's what I was curious. In San Francisco?
1: No, I still rent. I mean, I might buy one day, but because like I usually, like I mentioned, I spend a lot of time on the road and traveling. So, haven't quite figured out where the most long-term base will be for me. I think it probably will be San Francisco or the the Bay Area at least. But no, I, I currently rent, and I like having that that flexibility. But no, overall, I mean, the adjustment is not that big. The adjustment is really just like friends and family. But I do go back to London reasonably often because we have the office there. And I'd say generally, like you say, as you get older, like people don't really. You spend less time with friends anyway. So I think when I see my friends, it's not like they're hanging out as much as we did when we were kind of all 22 and single and kind of really early on in our jobs. And particularly as time goes on, whether you have a business or not, by the time you get into your 30s, assuming you're on a good trajectory career-wise, you're probably managing people. Most of my kind of friends of a similar age are now in a position where they're managing people, they have responsibilities. So kind of people don't have, most people are not finishing work at 4 p.m. to go meet, meet at the local bar. That Those days are long gone, unfortunately. Well,
0: how about balancing that work life with, even if you don't have as many friends per se, it seems like you said you've been married for a few years. Any suggestions on that, being able to balance that relationship with your wife and working as hard as you do?
1: Yeah, I think it's a difficult one. The first thing, you just have to have a really straight up honest conversation. When I met my now wife, I had a business. So she only ever knew me when I was running a business. When we met, I was working a regular day job and then say 35 hours a week. And now I work 90 hours a week. I've always been pretty consistent. But I think you just have to be like super honest. It's tough. We have a very different relationship to a lot of people. Last year, for example, I was on the road almost half of the year as in nights away from home. So it's very different where not we live separate lives, but you kind of get used to being quite independent, but also being a couple. But I'd say like you just have to be honest, kind of be on the same page with the kind of journey you're on. And also one thing I try and do a lot more that I didn't do for a long time is when you do have time, try and actually spend some quality time together. I was one of those culprits that I would work all the time and then when it get to weekends, I would also work all weekend and I would never really take a break. Whereas I found that it sounds quite stupid, but even just taking like one Saturday and just going like San Francisco, go for a hike, take the car out, go for a hike, go for a nice meal. That's kind of a good way to reset for the week. But no, I'd say it's a really difficult one to balance. And if you ask my wife, she would definitely say I'm not an expert. But I'd say if you're kind of transparent about it and you're all on the same page with what you're trying to achieve, I think that definitely helps. And then I know it's really difficult. It's a really difficult thing to do, but try and take time away and take a little bit of a break to reset even if that's literally just like a day I realized that a long time ago now that I think just my general personality and what we do as a business I can't take two weeks away and just turn off and reset so it's not something I can do I don't know a lot of people would say that's toxic and you should turn off and take a long break and reset and recharge because I don't really want to do that so I like taking shorter break taking some time together with like friends family whatever it might be But I don't think there's anything to be ashamed of if you like working. If you like it, then do it. Some people like watching 20 hours of Netflix a week. (laughs) I I personally don't. I prefer working. So I guess I've learned over the years not to be apologetic for who you are. So I get on with that.
0: I agree. I'm the same way. It's not judgment for any way. It's like, well, that's good for you. How many people, I think over 50% of people hate their jobs. So that's their choice to go to that job. At least you found something that you like. So everyone's going to do what they like. If they don't like their job, they're not going to do it as hard versus you. If you actually enjoy it, there's proof that you enjoy it because you're actually working in the business.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I think for the record, I don't think there's anything wrong if you want to watch Netflix 20 (laughs) hours a week. That's just not me. If you're that, don't judge the person who wants to work all the time. And if you work all the time, you should not judge those who do not work all the time. So I don't have an issue. I think you have to come to terms with what you are personally. And I think the one good thing about the nature of this industry is if the people you like and associate with don't geographically live in the same apartment block, it doesn't really matter because you will find someone else who agrees with your mindset and your approach to business. And if people don't like it, that's fine. You either don't have to talk to them or you can have a healthy debate. In general, I don't bother getting involved in debates about what's right or wrong in terms of how many hours you work. Do what makes you happy and get on with it. There's no point arguing over what's right because it's a very personal decision.
0: Well, we can talk about politics and religion next time too. And we can debate that if you're interested.
1: Yeah, well, that's definitely a conversation I'm still way clear of. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. If you're not going to judge Netflix, I figured you'd stay away from that as well. But definitely, yeah, I know it's everyone's perspective. I think anyone who's listening, like I said, is probably a go getter because it's the way I think about it is like I listen to other business podcasts when I have free time and we enjoy it or else we want not be doing it. So anyone listening is probably more of our mindset of like, okay, I enjoy business or I want to make my business better. The way I'm going to do that is by consuming good podcasts like this one. So we appreciate you coming on. I guess any other last words of wisdom before we get off?
1: No, I think this has been good. I really appreciate the time and the conversation. it's been really interesting to go through.
0: Did have an online business? Did they just visit your website? And if they were interested in selling or maybe buying one, you can feel free to plug that. This actually could be a good stepping stone for anyone instead of maybe just starting one. Maybe they had a a 40-hour-a-week job and they have some money saved. And maybe they wanted to get into entrepreneurship. And maybe this is a good way to start it.
1: Yeah, sure. So it's super low pressure. But the easiest way to do it is go to our website, which is feinternational.com. If you're interested in buying a business, navigate to the buy business section. If you own an online business, you want a valuation, we do free valuations. You can go to the seller website section and request a free valuation and someone will get in touch. Yeah, and then as a buyer, you can kind of browse for free. We don't charge you anything to have a look. And Like I said, we also have loads of tons and tons of free content, whether that's on our site or podcasts I've been on or events we've we've spoken at. There's a lot of different content if you want to learn more. Cause I don't expect anyone will listen to this podcast and then the next day go buy a business. It's definitely something you need to take a little bit of time to kind of think about. So talk to people in our team, read our content, read other people's content and then kind of move forward once you're comfortable.
0: Well, thank you Thomas for coming on and sharing your story. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks so much. And one other thing, I guess if anyone wants to say thank you for doing the episode, is there a best way for them to reach you?
1: Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I'm active on all social media. I'd say for me, like either like Twitter or Facebook, I'm pretty active. Or you can email me. My direct email is thomas at com. I'd say in general, like I said, I'm on, well, mostly I'm on the road all the time. So I'm quite difficult to get hold of via email. But if you mention the podcast and you have a specific question,
0: I'm more than happy to reply personally. Right. I send you a message on Twitter or Facebook. Like I said, if we just look you up
1: yeah either of those i'm kind of on all of those like while i try and spend less time on forums and social media than 10 years ago i'm still active
0: on all of those well it makes sense too as much as you travel like those are the times you probably should be on it versus spending a whole eight hour day or whatever your 12 hour days or whatever you know all on a forum makes more sense right yeah exactly all right well thanks again thomas for sharing your story See, I'm looking at our new, what are we doing now for our Patreon, for our group calls? Oh, we're doing two a month? Yeah, we are. And the membership price is still the same? (laughs) Unbelievable. So if you want to become a member, join our Patreon membership by going to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon. And again, the price is still the same. I'm not going to keep it this way forever. We're now doing two group calls a month for the price of one. You're welcome.